0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel, the lead mentor here at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run online courses and online mentorship. So check us out at tkex.org. If you're listening on iTunes or Spotify, leave us a rating or subscribe and/or subscribe so we can continue delivering high-quality guests, such as the one in front of me right now, Anthony Berrick, back for part three. He is a psychologist specializing in working with people who are experiencing pain and anxiety and really keen to dive into some topics and expand on what we've been through in the first two podcasts so do take a listen if you haven't yet and thank you once again Anthony for making the time.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So we expanded on a lot of topics and one of the ones I wanted to cover today and considering it's one of your specialties is the fear and anxiety and how that kind of interrelates and, and comes into play with someone's experience of pain. So could you teach us and dive into the, how they kind of relate?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, <clears throat> I guess the kind of the, the big picture thing to, um, to keep in mind here is that um, the experience of pain, much like the experience of Um, Fear is is something that um, our brains have evolved over millions of years um, because they are very useful and very effective experiences for motivating action, right? And, um, so because, uh, they're very unpleasant experiences, they are powerfully motivating to, um, to encourage behaviors that will reduce those experiences. So whatever we can do to take away pain or take away fear, um, we will be very motivated to do. Um, and so, uh, in the same way that fear is used by the brain to protect us from potential, um, danger, pain is used by the brain to protect, um, our bodies from potential harm so, um, it's really important that that you kind of uh, keep this in mind that that pain and and fear they're different, but they are they're both these kind of um threat response systems that the brain uses to try and keep us safe and to the the extent that um they they work, um you know that's why they have been um passed down from generation to generation for many millions of years, um, going back to like a, a common, you know, reptilian ancestor. Um, and that's why we share these experiences with, you know, um, certainly all other vertebrates and, and many other creatures, um, on earth because, uh, they're, they're really good at keeping us safe. Um, but they're not perfect systems either. Right. So sometimes we can be afraid of something that um, is actually not a danger to us. You know, so in the case of a phobia, and then we might need some help to kind of um, find a way to become uh, less fearful of that thing. Um, Similarly, um, the pain response doesn't always indicate an accurate level of threat to the, the integrity of, of our bodies. Um, but it's really important to keep this in mind. So the fear is telling us about something that could happen in the future and it's motivating us to take action to stop that happening. Pain is telling us about something that could happen in the future and is motivating us to take action to stop that happening. Um, so uh, it, that's kind of like a, a subtle um, point, but... Um, it's it's really important to keep that in mind. Pain is not telling us about what has happened. It's telling us about what the brain anticipates might happen. And so, to to come up with that um, uh, that prediction about the future, the brain takes a whole lot of information um, into account. And it does it like at lightning fast speed. Um, uh, and it has to because it, it's, no, it's no good to you if you have to kind of sit down there and like weigh out the, the, the probabilities and think about all your past experiences and, um, you know, look up, uh, you know, a, a textbook and, and then figure out, you know, am I really in danger or not? Um, you know, by the time you figured that all out, your legs broken or the tiger's eaten you. Right. So you need to, it needs to be super fast and highly motivating. Um, And so one of the many factors that the brain um, takes into account when, when deciding, you know, how much pain signal it needs to give you to, to motivate you to take protective action is your emotional state. And so an emotional state of fear um, is going to increase the likelihood of the brain um, giving you a pain signal in response to some other kind of sensory input. Um, So, to give you give you a couple of um, examples um, so i run a, a a clinic where we work with people with a with phobia of dogs um, that's called cynophobia. Um and if you've ever had a dog kind of like jump up on you or put their paws up on you um, you'd probably know that Uh, Dogs don't have very sharp claws. They're not like cats. They're not uh, they don't hunt with their with their claws Their claws are not designed for you know catching and 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 ripping apart prey. They're more designed for digging Um, So their claws are kind of like they're hard, but they're not very sharp Um, So if a dog kind of jumps up puts its paws up on you um, You would probably you'd notice a, a bit of a kind of a scratchy feeling on your leg, but you probably wouldn't experience that as pain unless while that's happening, you're also experiencing a lot of fear or anxiety because then that changes the, the, the calculation um, that your brain is using to decide whether or not to create pain and how much pain to, to create how much you need to protect yourself from this potential threat and so quite a number of times when i've been doing the um uh the cynophobia work with with clients with the phobia of dogs um and we've got to a point where we're kind of you know um uh, the client um feels ready to invite the dog to you know put his put his paws up on their knee or um, or on their leg and um when the dog has done that then the client has um expressed that that is a, a painful experience ah oh, oh oh i scratched my leg and um i must admit the first you know probably a couple of times that that happened um you know, I kept the, my poker face on, but, um, you know, in the back of my mind, I was sort of rolling my eyes a little bit thinking, you know, gee, come on, mate. Like, you know, um, uh, I, I know that's not painful. You're sort of, you're putting it on a bit here. Um, and I, I now understand that, that, uh, that's not the case at all. The, the pain that they were feeling was a hundred percent real. Um, And it's not because they have a you know low threshold um for pain or that they're particularly sensitive to to pain or that part of their body is extremely sensitive or anything like that it's not a it's not a a physical explanation um like that it's a contextual explanation it's because of how pain works pain takes everything into account pain is not just about um sensory input um it's not just about nociception right um so uh in fact their their response was you know completely genuine and they were experiencing the pain so my response to that response has kind of evolved over time and you know i'd like to think i'm a bit more um Bit more more uh, compassionate and and uh, understanding um, when that happens now. Um, another really powerful example of this that that I had I can't remember if we spoke about it um, uh, previously was um, a client who had a a phobia of it was sort of like presented as a, a needle phobia. She she needed to get a, a blood test for some reason and she was extremely anxious about doing that she had hadn't had any um uh, she had avoided all kinds of uh you know injections and 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 blood tests in the past because she had this real um fear of something happening to her veins something rupturing her veins causing her to like bleed out basically she had that sort of image in her mind that that. um you know, her skin was very fragile, and and her veins these they're these like really delicate things, and they could just sort of like burst open and blood spray everywhere, and you know she'd she'd bleed out, and um, she'd had this this kind of fear since she was uh, really little, and it was to do with her, her brother having had a an injury of some kind, um, and so she'd avoided you know anything going anywhere near her veins, but also you know to the point of always wearing long sleeves um, because she would feel anxious even just looking at her veins. Cause she said, you know, just looking at them, it's like, you can see them. They're right there under the skin. They're so like, you know, it, it's so precarious. Anything could just, you know, rip them. Um, and she wouldn't wear a watch or she wouldn't wear a bracelet or anything that would touch, touch the veins. And, um, so, you know, we kind of, uh, we, we proceeded with, uh, doing some exposure therapy and, um, you know looking at uh, looking at pictures and videos and, and people getting injections and people bleeding and all these kind of things that we would do and getting her to like notice her thoughts and notice what she'd feel in her body and um, when even doing that she would sometimes say like oh I can feel something like aching in my aching in my wrists where the veins are when she would just like watch it and think about it um, and then finally, we were kind of ready to start doing a bit more of sort of in vivo exposure, like real life exposure. And so I was sort of thinking, oh, what's what's like the the lightest, gentlest kind of touch that we could use to um, invite her to try? And, uh, you know, so I had a tissue box there. So I was like, oh, what if we what if we grabbed a tissue and, um, you know, just kind of use the end of the tissue to to touch the veins? Uh, would you be? Uh, would you be keen to to give that a try? And so she's like, Yeah, yeah, let's let's give that a go. And um, so she, you know, held out her wrist, and I just kind of gently, um, you know, brushed the the tissue on her wrist, and she she like cried out in pain, and she winced, and she pulled her arm. Like, ah, ah, so it hurts, it hurts. Um, and you know, I you could I could tell like she wasn't putting it on. She wasn't that good of an actor. Um, it was it was a hundred percent real. Um, And it was like, wow, you know, a tissue um, just gently brushing the skin, causing that pain response. Um, but clearly it was because, um, her, the context was such that um she was in her in her mind or in her in her brain's um perception of of what was happening she was doing something that was really dangerous potentially with like really serious um potential kind of ramifications if it sort of went wrong that even this very light touch was then filtered through that contextual lens so the brain decided that touch presented a threat to the integrity of her her body and so the brain went eh, you know turn on the pain alarm Um, you should not be doing this like what the hell are you doing stop right now Um, turns on the pain and what does she do pulls away um and it's like as you know that, that's how pain is supposed to work um you're in danger the brain says stop that right now uh, you know what the hell are you doing um and then she she stopped um you know so we were we were able to then kind of like talk about that work through it and um do it again and and over time you know there was less of that response because her her anxiety about it decreased um uh, and eventually final session went with her and uh, and she was able to to do the blood test and and afterwards she's like oh wow you know that was great and uh, actually didn't didn't really hurt at all and it's like yeah well it didn't hurt then because you know she was feeling she was feeling confident and
0: and um, relaxed about it that's great the examples kind of illustrate the point that there's so many overlaps between the the fear the kind of emotion that we experience the the pain the kind of unpleasant, uh, sensory and, and perceptual experience. And, and even for, for her, the anxiety or the worry, the, the concern about like the, the, f- the future, the uncertainty, it kind of all interlinked in that case.
1: Yeah. On the, on the flip side. Um, so I, I grew up in, in Singapore and in, in Singapore and Malaysia, they have a, um, a festival, um, It's a Hindu festival called Taipasam, which involves the uh, worshippers um, walking from uh, one temple to another um, with these huge um, kind of ornate, um, uh, what would you call them? Um, Almost like, like structures that they carry on their back that they rest on their shoulders, but they're attached to their body. With all these hooks, like literally metal hooks that go through the skin. And often they also have a, a spear, that's like a, a, a long, thin metal spike that goes through one cheek and out the other, um, sometimes even through the tongue. Um, you know, like it's pretty, pretty full on. Um, and then they walk and not only walk, but they dance um, as they walk and uh you know there's drumming and everyone lines the streets and cheers and you know um they do this as a kind of like a um sort of uh to 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 get sort of good 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 karma and sort of re- repent for the the sins of of um the past year and their family as well kind of you know get some brownie points um and then when they get to the temple then they have to walk across um you know burning coals but um reading some, like, uh, some interviews with these uh, devotees and, and you know, when they ask the obvious question, like, does it hurt? Um, the answer is no, it doesn't hurt. And it's not that it doesn't hurt because, you know, they just have an insane, like, threshold for pain and they're just, like, the most hardcore, you know, kind of guys um, out there. Um, it doesn't hurt because of the context, right? They um, They are Completely sincere in their belief, and um, they uh, the context of their their community encouraging them, supporting them. The belief that this is something that is, um, uh, you know, they they are they're doing this for for their their gods, and they will be you know they'll be protected. It's like it's a really positive thing to be doing, and. Um, so of course, they feel the sensation of the hooks and the, the, the spike and, and the hot coals, but their brain does not perceive it as a threat. And so um,
0: they don't experience pain. And would they perhaps presumably not really, they'd probably feel that fear perhaps or like where does anxiety and fear obviously speculating um, come into
1: this particular example well so so my interpretation was that they're they're not experiencing um fear because um because this is a, a kind of like a traditional like cultural phenomenon that uh they've seen lots of other people do it and something that you know something is done that 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 is is a kind of a a practice that is um sort of protected by 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 um this, you know, almost like a supernatural force. It's like nothing bad is going to happen to you if you do this because you're doing something, like, amazing. Um, so there, there's no fear. It's not like that people are walking down the street, you know, in, in tears going, oh, God, this is horrible. Please stop it. You know, they're, they're in a bit of a state of a trance almost as they do it, but they're very much like um, uh, it's very much a positive experience for the, the
0: the devotees who are doing it. It's quite safe for them in that particular context. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. That's so good to, to get those kind of examples to illustrate the points of how all these things kind of mesh together. And when we're going through the process of, of exposure therapy and, and graded exposure to, so to help someone experiencing pain, there will be some fear and anxiety likely involved in that process. And I was curious as to the, the way that we can enhance that, the learning effect through our exposure therapy. So there's the buzzword of expectancy violation. And how else can we kind of so facilitate that really positive context and environment for someone to, to gain that learning effect.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess one of the most important and uh, sort of powerful things that we can do as a um, clinician when working with someone um, who is experiencing uh, some, some fear and anxiety um, around, you know, the, the task, the activity that we're, um, we're encouraging them, inviting them to do is, um, creating a relationship, um, that, um, has, you know, a level of, of trust and, um, understanding that allows this person to then be willing to um, take risks and um, accept your invitation to try something that might be scary so we know that exposure doesn't work simply through a, you know, a kind of a, a, a process of mere exposure, right? You can't like, you can't stick someone with a phobia of dogs in a room with a, with a, a bunch of, of dogs and lock the door and say, I'll come back in an hour, you know, when you're over your fear. Um, that would would literally traumatize them uh, and uh, make the fear much worse. So it's not when we're doing exposure therapy, the key word is the therapy part, right? We have to find a way to make that exposure therapeutic. Um, And exposure to a feared um, stimulus is therapeutic when... um, when the person feels that they have choice and that they are willingly, willingly, um, making the choice to have that encounter, or that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we need to be putting out an invitation rather than coercing or, you know um pressuring and not that not that you or i or or anyone listening to this would ever be sort of coercing a patient in in a in the sense of like you know well i'm going to tell the insurer that you know you're not you're not uh, fulfilling your obligations if you don't do this or do that um, we would never even you know contemplate doing something uh, coercing a, a patient explicitly but um, we might inadvertently coerce someone implicitly if we haven't built that relationship with them yet, um, where you know they come to the session and we are the clinician and they are the patient, and so that already brings with it all these sort of expectations and um, cultural understandings of how this relationship works, and then we say to them. Um, you know, today we're going to do X, Y, Z. We don't ask them um, what they think about doing X, Y, Z. And they perhaps don't feel like they have the right to say, um, I'm really scared and I don't want to do that. And so they do it, but they're they're doing it um, out of coercion rather than than a, a genuine sort of free choice that they're making. Um, and they might get through it, you know. They might um, kind of grit their teeth and bear it, or sort of white knuckle through it with you know clenched fists and 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 their eyes half closed, um, and just kind of get to the other side. And oh God, is it over yet? Can I can I stop now? Um, but that doesn't help one bit. Um, the kind of exposure that uh, is of benefit is when the person kind of um, has a genuine desire to engage in that and maybe even like a curiosity to to find out what that experience is going to to feel like um it's okay it's totally fine if they're if 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 they're still feeling anxious um or, or you know some degree of fear when they're doing that as long as they're willing to have that fear, you know. So um, I love uh, things like you know roller coasters or you know some of those kind of th- um, thrilling type of of um, activities. Um, but I don't like it in spite of the fear. I like it because of the fear, right? Like it's kind of fun to to play around with with fear um, in a context where you know that you're safe. Um, and you know that you have choice, you know, no one has ever, you know, forced me at gunpoint to get on a roller coaster. Um, if they did, it probably wouldn't be a, a great experience. Um, but when, when it's my choice um, and uh, I'm kind of, I'm curious and I'm, I'm excited to to kind of find out what what's going to happen. And I know that there's going to be some fear involved, then that's actually kind of exhilarating. Um, and and a lot of uh, a lot of clients describe the process of of exposure therapy um, when when we're doing uh, when we're doing that with with phobias
0: as exhilarating and and exciting. That's great. So it gets that kind of um, you're developing the trust first and foremost. So you're creating that context, and you're asking for permission for them to engage in those kind of behaviors first of all, as opposed to just uh, saying we're going to do this, like we're the authority figure. So I think that's the first and foremost step. And then you're finding out that starting point for them and, and making sure that throughout that process that they're willing to engage in the experience as opposed to kind of um, avoiding it or like wishing they weren't there or feeling as though um, they didn't have a choice in the matter. So we're always giving the person the choice throughout the process.
1: Yeah. For sure. And I would say it's not, it's, it's even more than just asking permission because asking permission is sort of like, um, it's about you, right? Can I do this? or can I get, can I, um, kind of get you to do this for me? Um, I would, I would, uh, phrase it more in terms of like, uh, putting out an invitation,
0: saying, would you like to try this? Got it. So the power is in in their court. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's like it's like it's me standing here, kind of holding out a hand and, and saying, like, do you want to come with me? rather than me standing behind you and and
0: pushing you through the door and saying, Go on, go on, give it a go. <laughs> gotcha. And with with that, the the learning effects so after they've been exposed to the, the stimulus and they've, they've been engaged throughout the process. How do we then enhance that kind of the learning that they take from that experience, like with self-reflection and, and seeing with experiments afterwards, how do we kind of enhance the long-term learning effect from the our 30 minute consultation?
1: Yeah. So like you said, kind of um, some doing some reflection together, like what did you think was going to happen um, before you did it? Um, what did happen? Um, what showed up for you? Obviously, while it's happening as well, um, inviting them to really uh, bring their attention to the experience and um, kind of uh, show up to that experience um, mindfully. Um, I know mindfulness is a kind of a, a big buzzword, um, and I think. Uh, um, I think sometimes uh, the way clinicians um, view how mindfulness can be, um, can play a role in, in um, things like uh, anxiety and pain um, can sometimes be a little bit uh, counterproductive um, because it's sometimes Used as a control um, technique, rather than where it really uh, can be of of tremendous benefit, is to enhance the effect of exposure um, by enabling the the person to um, show up to their experience without defense and without engaging in control strategies or safety behaviors um, during that process. Um, You know, so those are the kind of things that that we'd want to be doing um, at the time, but then even uh, subsequently kind of inviting the the client then to um, engage in some uh, experiments outside of the the session um, that are kind of like, know taking what we've done here and uh, you know doing that at at home and in different contexts and uh, the more different contexts we can um, do that in then the the more that learning will tend to to generalize Um, so it's not just you know kind of oh yeah I'm okay when I'm with Daniel um, as long as he's watching me and he's giving me instruction Um, using the right equipment when I've warmed up um, beforehand uh, having had a good night's sleep the night before uh, you know all these kind of conditions are like yes then well then I'll be okay Uh, it it generalizes to um, you know actually I can I can do this movement under load um, in a variety of, of settings doesn't really matter how much sleep I've had and it doesn't matter if I do it perfectly or imperfectly. And yeah.
0: That's great. So that goes with the value of playing around with different variations. Uh, So the variability concept with, with exposure therapy could, so, and you also touched on the mindfulness aspect, how on, on one side we could be kind of avoiding the, in mindfulness, typically stress, pushing stress away or, or avoiding the, the painful, unpleasant thoughts and feelings that come up. So instead we're using mindfulness to actually increase their awareness and attention and, and get them to notice what's going through what their mind is saying or what they're feeling as opposed to kind of pushing it away. Cause I feel like that pushing away might be a distraction for them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, again, this is a kind of like a, a contextual thing, um, where, um, Mindfulness is often, for a lot of people, sort of synonymous with um, meditation. Meditation kind of evokes images of, of kind of, you know, blissing out and, and peace and tranquility and relaxation and going to a happy place. Um, and so if I've got fear and anxiety and pain, well, these are very un- uncomfortable experiences, unwanted experiences um mindfulness is this thing that helps you like relax and and feel good and feel calm and at peace and okay cool so next time i'm i'm in pain or when i'm feeling anxious i'm gonna do some mindfulness and that'll help to get rid of those feelings um which you know if you have a little bit of stress a little you know, touch of anxiety, um, probably doing a ten minute meditation uh, could well be just the ticket, right? But um, to the extent that it it does work, that it does kind of get rid of unwanted feelings, it's actually a hindrance to exposure therapy. because what we're trying to do in exposure therapy, is get better at having those experiences. Um, We're not trying to um, practice getting rid of them. And of course when pain is very intense or when fear or anxiety are very intense, um, you know, A little bit of meditation isn't going to cut it it's not going to get rid of those feelings so then you're going to be like frantically trying to like meditate the feelings away and freaking out because oh no it's not even it's not working i have to like you know meditate harder um and now you're you're anxious about the anxiety because you just can't control it uh so it ends up being totally counterproductive and so I, i see clients like that all the time who have kind of come across mindfulness and and meditation and and um you know, have maybe got a little bit of benefit when they've been doing it. They notice, oh, I feel a bit more relaxed after that. And then they go, aha, I can use this with my panic attacks. Um, and, but it, it becomes um, very quickly it becomes counterproductive. Um, and it just feeds into the the fear of the panic attack, which is what's causing the panic attacks.
0: Yeah. So there is that difference between the meditation for relaxation and Mindfulness awareness bringing up their attention to what they're what they're noticing what's going through their mind. That's kind of the the distinction there
1: right, so we can use mindfulness skills to um, To enhance uh, exposure therapy in a couple of ways so uh, number one we can we can use uh, mindfulness skills to um, kind of um, Focus attention on what is happening when we're doing exposure. And, and I guess if you think about, I guess the opposite of focused attention would be um, kind of like being unconscious, right? So if you, if you like anesthetize someone, you gave someone a general anesthetic, and then you just did exposure therapy to them, and then at the end they woke up and you said, well, it's finished now, we've, we've done the exposure therapy. Would you expect them to be any less fearful? um no because it's like they need to be there they need to be there right um and what what are we doing when we're um bringing mindful attention to something we're really being there with it um so whatever is happening when, during that exposure is going to be happening to a greater degree the more the client is um Is paying attention to what's going on. So, we might invite them to pay attention to sensations that they feel in their body. Um, We might invite them to bring their attention outside of their body. If we notice that they tend to, um, you know, kind of get caught up in um, paying too much attention to, to the sensations in their body and sort of like obsessing about what they feel in their body, we might invite them to expand their awareness to other aspects of their experience. Um, you know, what they can see and, and, and uh, feel on the surface of their skin and um, what they can smell, um, where they notice the, the center of um, balance is in their body as they as they standing still before they commence a movement. Um, we might also get them to use those mindfulness skills to notice the thoughts that are going through their mind at the time. Um, notice the, the emotions that are showing up. Sometimes people will um, will be experiencing a, um, a really powerful emotion that's having a really big impact on their behavior and the way that they're, you know, um, interacting with the world and interpreting information, and they're not even aware that they're experiencing that emotion, right? And it's like, well, how do you know... How to kind of evaluate your experience when you're not even aware of the sort of the the lens through which you're experiencing it? Like if you're wearing sunglasses that are orange tinted, and you're like, "Gee, you know, this this city, you know, they really need to do something about the air pollution because everything's orange." It's like, uh, "Hey, dude, like your lenses on your glasses are orange." Like, oh, okay, that explains it. Well, what if what if, um, every time you, you go to do a certain activity, you're really anxious and, and you're not even sort of aware of, of how anxious you are. Um, just becoming aware of that might change the meaning that you give to some of the experiences that you, you have when you're doing that. You might start to notice, you know, gee, I have a lot of really like kind of negative and, and, you know, catastrophic thoughts when I do this. Um, but I didn't realize how anxious I feel like emotionally, I feel really scared. And you know, my heart, whoa, it's beating like crazy. And, and, um, my, my breathing, my chest feels really tight. Um, I've got this lump in my throat and okay, well, maybe those thoughts are part of that experience and maybe, um, yeah, maybe I'll, I won't, uh, hold on to them so tightly. Um, and, uh, um, Maybe I'll the the way I'll kind of look at my thoughts will change a little bit.
0: That's great. You're touching on so many different aspects of of act, which we kind of covered in in previous podcasts as well. So that kind of awareness, first of all, can separate us from that experience versus us kind of being fused with it at the same time. So it's really great. So that's that's a way for us to to not avoid the the sensations or the pain and and look at ways that we can enhance that person's Awareness of their environment, or, or how fast the the movement is, all of a sudden, or what they're doing differently, or what they notice about the the barbell, the the, the dumbbell, the weight that they're using, how different is it? And then that we're enhancing that curiosity as well in that process. So that's it's really awesome. Yeah,
1: and and a kind of um, uh, giving them giving them the 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 skills to. Um, kind of get disentangled from that experience um, and uh, and therefore less less pushed around by it. so it 's like here I am, here is my pain, here are my thoughts um, rather than uh, you know just my thoughts are my reality
0: right now. Um, I am my pain. It's observing self, as they say. Yeah. With, um, with safety behaviors, I wanted to, to touch on this kind of aspect when, when going through some of the exposure therapy, uh, literature. So what, what are some examples of, of safety behaviors? So you mentioned before there was the whole list of kind of, um, you know, I need a sleep ride. I need to make sure Daniel's there. I need to make sure my, well, my coach is there, make sure all the equipment looks you know, at peak condition and it's this, this time of the day, uh, would those be kind of examples or could you expand on other kind of uh, examples where people are holding on to certain safety behaviors, say, before a, a movement?
1: Yeah. So I guess some of those that, that you listed would be like um, perhaps more like safety signals. Um, those are things that, that people have um, come to have given the meaning that like this means that, you know, I'll be okay. Um, because I've had a good night's sleep or Or, you know, my pain is low today. So that means I'm safe to do this this movement um, Safety behaviors would be things that people do to increase that sort of um, sense of of safety when they're engaging in something um, That they they feel anxious about um, So just to, to try and like think of some examples um, if you um it could be uh using a um like a knee brace uh when you when you run or when you when you walk when you train um it could be um carrying a you know packet of uh with you when you go out for the day so that you know if you get pain you've got the nurofen there to kind of to to fix the pain um it could even be in some cases it can be a little bit superstitious where it's like um you know the uh if i wear these socks that's uh, you know i always win win the match uh win win my tennis match when i wear the socks or um uh some, there might be some sort of like bad luck things like well if i do this Um, uh, that's going to stuff up my, 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 my session for, for today. Um, and there's, there's, there's kind of two different types of, of safety behaviors. There are safety behaviors that at least in the person's mind, reduce the likelihood of the unwanted event from occurring. And there are safety behaviors that um, provide comfort emotional comfort um, when the person is doing the thing that they uh, that they fear um, so let's say I have um I have been having panic attacks when I, when I go out and I'm really anxious about going on the uh, public transport in case I have a panic attack on, on a crowded train and I can't get off and I'm surrounded by people and I feel really embarrassed and everyone's looking at me. And um, so I decide to take um, a box of, uh, you know, a pack of uh, Xanax with me. Um, the Xanax, if I notice any slight feelings of anxiety that could be kind of uh, indicating to me that I might have a panic attack, I can quickly take a Xanax and, you know, cut it off and I can prevent the bad thing from happening. Um, so that's that type of safety behavior that's, that's about um, keeping me safe, stopping the bad thing from happening. The other type of safety behavior that's about comfort would be where I say to my partner, could you come with me on the train so that if I have a panic attack, um, you can kind of, you know, just quietly sit next to me and put your hand on my knee or hold my hand or something like that so um, I don't feel so kind of alone and, and terrified while that's happening and you holding my hand or putting a hand on my knee is not going to stop the panic attack it's not going to stop me feeling embarrassed if people look at me it's not going to stop anything bad from happening it's just going to give me some emotional support Um, and so what we what we find is that it's that first category of safety behaviors the safety behaviors that are around you know kind of um fixing the problem or stopping the 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 bad thing from happening that interfere with the benefit of exposure therapy. Whereas the second type, the type that are about providing, you know, emotional support, um, uh, actually, okay. We don't have to, we don't have to kind of, um, you know, tell the, the client, no, no, you're not allowed to have any someone there who, who's giving you support and, and encouragement. Um, that's perfectly fine. In fact, if that is what it takes to get you on the train,
0: then great. Go for it. So as long as it's not uh, reducing the kind of expectation of say pain happening, or it's not framed in a way that fixes or specifically reduces their pain it's more just a matter of comfort for the person. So we're not interfering with that learning effect. So for instance, if someone is about to do a squat and they have, uh, you mentioned knee wraps, they know that there's the squat is gonna be uncomfortable. It's, it's, it's gonna suck. It's like, it's not entirely pleasant for them or they're gonna experience some form of pain. The knee wraps are just for the comfort. Whereas if the knee wraps were taken interpreted by the person as fixing the knee pain the knee joint in positioning it in a correct manner fixing the knee pain away then that yeah. might be a less helpful
1: yeah it's like well if the knee wraps are somehow in that person's understanding of what's going on with their knees the knee wraps are like holding the knee in place and you know preventing um their knee from you know falling apart or exploding or then you know whatever Whatever, whatever it is that they, they kind of um, picture happening with their knees, um, then the knee wraps would be doing them a disservice because um, all they learn from that experience is that I need to squat with knee wraps and I dodged a bullet there because, you know, um, thank goodness I had those knee wraps there to, um, to, to protect me.
0: So they kind of learn to rely on that kind of implement over the the long term, Cause it's like, Oh, yeah, I'm exactly. experiencing pain. So I need to do this again.
1: Yeah. And it doesn't help them at all for when they don't have knee wraps and they're, you know, they're playing with their, their niece and, um, you know, they, they need to like kind of bend down on, into a squat position and they're, Oh no, this is dangerous because I don't have my knee wraps.
0: Perfect. I think there's, so there's, the reason I bring this up is uh, there's the kind of the debates of the passive versus the active kind of, therapies when it comes to someone with, with pain. So I think the main thing that I took from that is it depends on the, the function, the purpose of the therapy, even an exercise an active therapy can be seen as, you know, fixing and and corrective and, and taking the, like putting, positioning the joint in the right position um, for a squat, but that's kind of, they're depending on that and they kind of they're relying on it so that next time they experience pain, they're going to be like, "I, I squatted wrong. My technique is wrong
1: yeah exactly yeah um we've got to look at uh, when we look at behavior we've got to look at function not form um so even i i mean uh off the top of my head i can't think of a of a good use of xanax for someone with panic disorder but we need to look at what is the function of this person taking the xanax with them when they go on the train not just simply the form, which is, you know, taking an anxiolytic with you. Um, and then we say, oh, that's bad. That's always bad. Because, you know, Xanax is is the devil. Um, it depends on the function uh, for that particular individual. So, um, you know, knee wraps, what's the function? Um, you know, uh, even squatting, what's the function? Are, are you trying to fix some kind of you know, imbalance, are you trying to activate your sleepy glutes Um, uh, or um, is the, is the function to, um, you know, to, to get stronger and so that you can do
0: more of the things that, uh, that matter to you in life. So is it more of that comfort factor or that kind of performance factor versus kind of dependence on it, like relying on it?
1: Yeah. And even when it's a, you know, when it's a, a comfort, um, when the function is to provide comfort, like the person who goes on the train and says, Oh, is it all right if my partner comes with me? Because that would kind of give me a bit more courage. I'd be more willing to do it. Um, well, yes, of course, that's fine. Go for it. But then, you know, at some point it's like, well, will, will your partner always be with you on the train in the future? Well, no, because I need to get the train to work. So it's like, okay, well, at some point, we'll need to find a way to do it without your partner then, right? Because um, that's where you want to get to. So um, there comes a point even with that when it's even that having that comfort um, can become sort of uh, detrimental to that person's progress.
0: So we can rely on the knee wraps, we can rely on the, the coaching cues, the magic fixes of the corrective exercises. But if we if we don't have that coach anymore or if we forgot our wraps at home what are we going to do so I think these are the kind of questions that the therapists and clinicians we should ask when we when we decide on some kind of interventions for someone especially if it's for their comfort yeah awesome the the final kind of key bit and I think this this ties into what we talked about with building the the trust and rapport during exposure therapies is validation so how are some ways that we can properly effectively validate someone, someone's experience, say we'll stick with pain. How, how do we validate someone's experience of pain?
1: Yeah. I think, um, I think when it comes to, uh, validating, uh, someone's pain experience, um, the bar is actually quite low. Um, People, particularly with with chronic um, persistent pain, have had so many invalidating interpersonal experiences by the time you know they come and see you, whether that's you know a friend, a parent, a spouse, um, a boss, a colleague, um, their GP. Um, various other health professionals um, etc or just the kind of culture of you know no pain no gain and pain is weakness leaving the body and um, uh, you know if if uh, um, if you're complaining about pain then you're you know you're being a wuss um, there are so many invalidating experiences that um, that person has has probably had that the bar really isn't that high for you to um, provide a validating experience. Um, you just have to not um, invalidate their experience, right? By doing things like uh, making assumptions and. Um, lecturing and um you know kind of uh telling them like what's really going on and and explaining the biopsychosocial model of pain within the first two minutes of of meeting them um right uh you know so as long as you're you're creating a space for them to tell their story and feel heard, feel felt, um, and understood, then that's a very validating experience and probably so different to so many of the experiences that they've had that, um, you know, they walk away feeling like, uh,
0: you know, finally someone like, someone gets it, someone believes me. And showing that so perhaps a bit more listening than than telling and reflecting on what you're hearing to make sure that you know you're oh, yeah, interpreting absolutely. it right and all these kind of essential skills so it's, it's perhaps a lot easier to like you mentioned it's easier to invalidate maybe accidentally will, I'm sure there's lots of well-meaning clinicians and I put my hand up for doing this in the past and I, I strive not to still in the future to kind of uh, tell or jump in with conclusions or have that kind of writing reflex and, and explain their situation as though I know more than them. And, and like, I know more than their experience. So I think it's, yeah. it's more along the lines of using skills to make sure that we're not invalidating.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. And like you said, like this, that kind of like active listening and, and reflective listening where you're making sure that you, you understand correctly, um, what they're saying and not just the words they're saying, but, but the meaning, what, what that means to them and, um, and asking them, uh, genuinely, um, with, and with, you know, so not rhetorical questions or not leading questions, uh, not Socratic questioning where you're trying to lead them to a particular conclusion, um, but genuine questions, uh, where you're trying to, um, get to know this person and, and understand um, their experience and make sure that you you're understanding
0: them correctly. Great. And, and ideally not interrupting them, giving them that space and time to express themselves. I, I think that's really rare when it comes to a lot of, their uh, there are probably previous experiences in the, the healthcare system.
1: Yeah, for sure. And look, we're, we're limited by time, right? Like, um, if you have a, a 30 minute or 50 minute consultation, um, whatever um, it may be, you, you need to, um, to some extent, kind of um, dictate the flow of that conversation. And there's certain information that is relevant to to the consult that you're you're trying to get and if you can see that this person has kind of um and this can often happen uh, too that that someone when they start telling their story their pain story it might be a very long story um, and they might you might get this sense of that person kind of getting lost in that story as they're telling you we almost get this feeling of like um, they're telling this story now in a sort of a a storytelling way where they're not really talking to me anymore they're just going through the the behavior of telling a, a story that they've rehearsed a lot of times in their mind and you know some of the 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 giveaways for that is like where you're noticing that you're just sort of nodding your head and mm-hmm, 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 and you're just about to say something and then they go into the next thing and and then to the next thing and you're starting to feel like well hang on am i even am i even like part of this anymore um you know i could go go get myself a coffee and come back and they'd still be talking um I don't feel like a a connection with this person anymore, right? They've just kind of dropped into storytelling mode. And so it's perfectly fine when that's happening to kind of, um, use your skills as a, as a clinician to, um, help them kind of bring them out of that and back into a, a conversation again. Um, so you might even like kind of uh l- if you need to literally like put you, put your hand up and be like you know i'm I'm really sorry like to um to cut you off. Um, can I just press pause for a second um, uh you know i don't, I don't mean to to cut you off. I don't mean to interrupt you i really I want to hear what you have to say. I'm just aware um that uh you know we only have a short time here today and um you know i want to make sure that uh, you don't you don't kind of leave here feeling like you didn't get anything out of this session so i just want to make sure that um i'm understanding what you're saying correctly so far and then you start you 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 direct that conversation back towards um you know what is relevant to um to the the consultation you know so so you were you were mentioning that this happened and then that happened and you know um it sounds like that um when when that that thing there happened um that was the thing that that really upset you and i noticed when you were telling me about that um you kind of started talking a bit faster and, and getting a little bit more um sort of animated um uh, you know is am i am i understanding that right was, how how do you still feel about that and um you know using using your observations and and kind of um uh, reflecting them back to the the client um and asking them to um to to clarify um any points of uncertainty or to to confirm that you know you are interpreting things uh correctly um, it's amazing how you know um, effective and and powerful that can be. And, uh, you know, if, if you ever have a client say to you, oh, I've never thought about it like that before. Um, you know, you know, you've asked a, a really good question. Shows that you,
0: you got them. You understand? Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. What what they were really trying to say or what
0: they really meant without maybe even realizing it themselves. That's great. Awesome. Anthony, so many gems in this podcast and, and again, for the listeners, please listen, listen out to part one and part two in case you didn't quite catch some of the, the terminology, perhaps. I, I don't know. I've, I've been deep in this conversation myself, so probably haven't caught out on some of the, the terms that we use. But Anthony, thank you so much for your time. If people were to want to contact you, uh, where, can they, where can they find you? Yeah, just,
1: uh, or just Google my name, Anthony Barrick. Um, I've got a Facebook, uh, you know, page and, and, uh, anthonybrick.com.au is my website. Um, and, uh, yeah, please, um, please get in touch if, um, if, if you've got any, any anxiety related, uh, things that you'd like to, um, work on, um, pain as well, as you said, um, I'm really interested in and, um, working with, uh, with clients doing some, um, strength. Training as well. Um, so yeah, awesome. Very been, much, very much looking it's been, forward to that. Been a pleasure um, doing these these podcasts. Um, I'm not sure if there's a number four planned, but uh, I'm always always available to talk if there is.
0: You're, you're the record holder at the moment, Anthony. So we'll see. We'll see. And uh, really appreciate this, and and hope to continue these kind of conversations. The multidisciplinary kind of collaboration is so so important for all of us. So until next time. 100%.